Chapter Four of Book Three of De Anima by Aristotle, translated by R. D. Hicks. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Geoffrey Edwards. Chapter Four. As to the part of the soul with which it knows and understands, whether such part be separable spatially or not separable spatially, but only in thought we have to consider what is its distinctive character and how thinking comes about now if thinking is analogous to perceiving it will consist in a being acted upon by the object of thought or in something else of this kind this part of the soul then must be impassive but receptive of the form and potentially like this form though not identical with it and as the faculty of sense is to sensible objects so must intellect be related to intelligible objects the mind then since it thinks all things must needs in the words of anaxagoras be unmixed with any if it is to rule that is to know for by intruding its own form it hinders and obstructs that which is alien to it hence it has no other nature than this that it is a capacity thus then the part of the soul which we call intellect and by intellect i mean that whereby the soul thinks and conceives is nothing at all actually before it thinks hence too we cannot reasonably conceive it to be mixed with the body for in that case it would acquire some particular quality cold or heat or would even have some organ as the perceptive faculty has but as a matter of fact it has none therefore it has been well said that the soul is a place of forms or ideas except that this is not true of the whole soul but only of the soul which can think and again that the forms are there not in actuality but potentially but that the impassivity of sense is different from that of intellect is clear if we look at the sense organs and at sense the sense loses its power to perceive if the sensible object has been too intense thus it cannot hear sound after very loud noises and after too powerful colours and odours it can neither see nor smell but the intellect when it has been thinking on an object of intense thought is not less but even more able to think of inferior objects for the perceptive faculty is not independent of body whereas intellect is separable but when the intellect has thus become everything in the sense in which one who actually is a scholar is said to be so which happens so soon as he can exercise his power of himself even then it is still in one sense but a capacity not however a capacity in the same sense as before it learned or discovered and moreover at this stage intellect is capable of thinking itself now since magnitude is not the same as the quiddity of magnitude nor water the same as the quiddity of water and so also of many other things though not of all the thing and its quiddity being in some cases the same we judge the quiddity of flesh and flesh itself either with different instruments or with the same instrument in different relations for flesh is never found apart from matter but like quotes snub-nosed it is a particular form in a particular matter 
it is then with the faculty of sense that we discriminate heat and cold and all those qualities of which flesh is a certain proportion but it is with another faculty either separate from sense or related to it as the bent line when it is straightened out is related to its former self that we discriminate the quiddity of flesh again when we come to the abstractions of mathematics the straight answers to the quality quotes snub-nosed being never found apart from extension but the straightness of that which is straight always supposing that the straight is not the same as straightness is something distinct we may for instance assume the definition of straightness to be duality it is then with another instrument or with the same instrument in another relation that we judge it in general therefore to the separation of the things from their matter corresponds a difference in the operations of the intellect the question might arise assuming that the mind is something simple and impassive and in the words of anaxagoras has nothing in common with anything else how will it think if to think is to be acted upon for it is in so far as two things have something in common that the one of them is supposed to act and the other to be acted upon again can mind itself be its own object for then either its other objects will have mind in them if it is not through something else but in itself that mind is capable of being thought and if to be so capable is everywhere specifically one and the same or else the mind will have some ingredient in its composition which makes it like the rest an object of thought or shall we recall our old distinction between two meanings of the phrase quote, to be acted upon in virtue of a common element close quote, and say that the mind is in a manner potentially all objects of thought but is actually none of them until it thinks potentially in the same sense as in a tablet which has nothing actually written upon it the writing exists potentially this is exactly the case with the mind moreover the mind itself is included among the objects which can be thought for where the objects are immaterial that which thinks and that which is thought are identical speculative knowledge and its object are identical we must however enquire why we do not think always on the other hand in things containing matter each of the objects of thought is present potentially consequently material objects will not have mind in them for the mind is the power of becoming such objects without their matter whereas the mind will have the attribute of being its own object chapter five but since as in the whole of nature to something which serves as matter for each kind and this is potentially all the members of the kind there corresponds something else which is the cause or agent because it makes them all the two being related to one another as art to its material of necessity these differences must be found also in the soul and to the one intellect which answers to this description because it becomes all things corresponds the other because it makes all things like a sort of definite quality such as light for in a manner light too converts colours which are potential into actual colours and it is this intellect which is separable and impassive and unmixed being in its essential nature and activity for that which acts is always superior to that which is acted upon 
the cause or principle to the matter now actual knowledge is identical with the thing known but potential knowledge is prior in time in the individual and yet not universally prior in time but this intellect has no intermittence in its thought it is however only when separated that it is its true self and this its essential nature alone is immortal and eternal but we do not remember because this is impassive while the intellect which can be affected is perishable and without this does not think at all chapter six the process of thinking indivisible wholes belongs to a sphere from which falsehood is excluded but where both truth and falsehood are possible there is already some combining of notions into one as in the words of empedocles quote, where sprang into being the necklace heads of many creatures close quote. then afterwards love put them together so these notions first separate are combined as for instance the notions incommensurable and diagonal and if the thinking refers to the past or to the future the notion of time is included in the combination falsehood in fact never arises except when notions are combined for even if white be asserted to be not white not white is brought into a combination we may equally well call every statement a disjunction but at any rate under truth and falsehood we include not only the assertion that cleon is white but also the assertion that he was or will be and the unifying principle is in every case the mind since however the term indivisible has two meanings according as a whole is not potentially divisible or is actually undivided there is nothing to hinder us from thinking an indivisible whole when we think of a length that being actually undivided or from thinking it in an indivisible time for the time is a divisible or indivisible unit in the same way as the length thought of we cannot therefore state what the mind thinks in each half of the time for if the whole be undivided the half has only potential existence but if the mind thinks each half separately it simultaneously divides the time also and in that case it is as if the parts were separate lengths if however the mind conceives the length as made up of the two halves then the time may be regarded as made up of corresponding halves again that which is not quantitatively but specifically an indivisible whole the mind thinks in an indivisible unit of time and by an indivisible mental act per accidents however such specific unity is divisible though not in the same way as they the act of thought and the time required for the act are divisible but in the same way as they are whole and indivisible for in these specific unities also there is present a something indivisible though certainly not separately existent the same as that which constitutes the unity of both the time and the length and as with time and length so in like manner with whatever is continuous but the point and every division and whatever is an undivided whole in the same sense as the point is clearly explained by the analogy of privation and the same explanation holds in all other cases how for instance is evil apprehended or black in some fashion by its contrary 
but that which apprehends must potentially be and must contain within itself the contrary which it apprehends if however there be something which has no contrary some one of the causes then it is itself the content of its own knowledge is in actuality and is separately existent now every proposition like an affirmative proposition predicating something of something is true or false but with thought this is not always so when its object is the what in the sense of the quiddity and there is no predication thought is in every case true but as the perception by sight of the proper object of sight is infallibly true whereas in the question whether the white object is a man or not perception by sight is not always true so is it with immaterial objects chapter seven now actual knowledge is identical with the thing known but potential knowledge is prior in time in the individual and yet not universally prior even in time for it is from something actually existent that all which comes into being is derived and manifestly the sensible object simply brings the faculty of sense which was potential into active exercise in this transition in fact the sense is not acted upon or qualitatively changed consequently this must be a different species of motion for motion is as we saw an activity of that which is imperfect but activity in the absolute sense that is activity of that which has reached perfection is quite distinct sensation then is analogous to simple assertion or simple apprehension by thought and when the sensible thing is pleasant or painful the pursuit or avoidance of it by the soul is a sort of affirmation or negation in fact to feel pleasure or pain is precisely to function with the sensitive mean acting upon good or evil as such it is in this that actual avoidance and actual appetition consist nor is the appetitive faculty distinct from the faculty of avoidance nor either from the sensitive faculty though logically they are different but to the thinking soul images serve as present sensations and when it affirms or denies good or evil it avoids or pursues this is why the soul never thinks without an image to give an illustration the air impresses a certain quality on the pupil of the eye and this in turn upon something else and so also with the organ of hearing while the last thing to be impressed is one and is a single mean though with a plurality of distinct aspects what that is by which the soul judges that sweet is different from warm has been explained above but must be restated here it is a unity but one in the same sense as a boundary point and its object the unity by analogy of these two sensibles or their numerical unity is related to each of the two in turn as they taken separately are to each other for what difference does it make whether we ask how we judge the sensibles that do not fall under the same genus or the contraries which do like white and black suppose then that as a the white is to b the black so c is to d that is as those sensibles are to one another it follows convertendo that 
a is to c as b to d if then c and d are attributes of a single subject the relation between them like that between a and b will be that they are one and the same though the aspects they present are distinct and so too of their single subject the same would hold supposing a were the sweet and b the white thus it is the forms which the faculty of thought thinks in mental images and as in the region of sense the objects of pursuit and avoidance have been defined for it so also outside sensation when engaged with images it is moved to action as for instance you perceive a beacon and say quote, that is fire close quote, and then by the central sense seeing it in motion you recognize that it signals the approach of an enemy but at other times under the influence of the images or thoughts in the soul you calculate as though you had the objects before your eyes and deliberate about the future in the light of the present and when you pronounce just as there in sensation you affirm the pleasant or the painful here in thought you pursue or avoid and so in action generally and further what is unrelated to action as truth and falsehood is in the same class with the good and the evil yet in this at any rate they differ that the former are absolute the latter relative to some one concerned but the abstractions of mathematics as they are called the mind thinks as it might conceive the snub-nosed quae snub-nosed it would not be conceived apart from flesh whereas quae hollow if any one ever had actually so conceived it he would have conceived it without the flesh in which the hollowness resides so too when we think of mathematical objects we conceive them though not in fact separate from matter as though they were separate and speaking generally mind in active operation is its objects when it thinks them the question whether it is possible for the mind to think anything which is unextended without being itself unextended must for the present be postponed chapter eight and now let us sum up what has been said concerning the soul by repeating that in a manner the soul is all existent things for they are all either objects of sensation or objects of thought and knowledge and sensation are in a manner identical with their respective objects how this is so requires to be explained knowledge and sensation then are subdivided to correspond to the things potential knowledge and sensation answer to things which are potential actual knowledge and sensation to things which are actual while the sensitive and the cognitive faculties in the soul are potentially these objects i mean object of sensation and object of cognition respectively it follows that the faculties must be identical if not with the things themselves then with their forms the things themselves they are not for it is not the stone which is in the soul but the form of the stone so that there is an analogy between the soul and the hand for as the hand is the instrument of instruments so the intellect is the form of forms and sensation the form of sensibles 
but since apart from sensible magnitudes there is nothing as it would seem independently existent it is in the sensible forms that the intelligible forms exist both the abstractions of mathematics as they are called and all the qualities and attributes of sensible things and for this reason as without sensation a man would not learn or understand anything so at the very time when he is actually thinking he must have an image before him for mental images are like present sensations except that they are immaterial imagination however is distinct from affirmation and negation for it needs a combination of notions to constitute truth or falsehood but it may be asked how will the simplest notions differ in character from mental images i reply that neither these nor the rest of our notions are images but that they cannot dispense with images chapter nine the soul in animals has been defined in virtue of two faculties not only by its capacity to judge which is the function of thought and perception but also by the local movement which it imparts to the animal assuming the nature of sensation and intellect to have been so far determined we have now to consider what it is in the soul which initiates motion whether it is some one part of the soul which is either locally separable or logically distinct or whether it is the whole soul and again if a separate part whether it is a special part distinct from those usually recognized and from those enumerated above or whether it coincides with some one of these a question at once arises in what sense it is proper to speak of parts of the soul and how many there are for in one sense there appear to be an infinite number of parts and not merely those which some distinguish the reasoning passionate and concupiscent parts for which others substitute the rational and the irrational for if we examine the differences on which they base their divisions we shall find that there are other parts separated by a greater distance than these namely the parts which we have just discussed the nutritive which belongs to plants as well as to all animals and the sensitive which cannot easily be classed either as rational or irrational imagination again is logically distinct from them all while it is very difficult to say with which of the parts it is in fact identical or not identical if we are to assume separate parts in the soul then besides these there is appetency which would seem to be distinct both in concept and in capacity from all the foregoing and surely it is absurd to split this up for wish in the rational part corresponds to concupiscence and passion in the irrational and if we make a triple division of soul there will be appetency in all three parts to come now to the question at present before us what is it that imparts to the animal local movement for as for the motion of growth and decay which is found in all animals it would seem that this must be originated by that part of soul which is found in all of them the generative and nutritive part inspiration and expiration of breath sleep and waking subjects full of difficulty call for subsequent enquiry but to return to locomotion we must enquire what it is that imparts to the animal progressive motion that it is not the nutritive faculty is clear 
for this motion is always directed to an end and is attended either by imagination or by appetency no animal which is not either seeking or avoiding something moves except under compulsion moreover if it were the nutritive faculty plants also would be capable of locomotion and thus would have some part instrumental in producing this form of motion similarly it is not the sensitive faculty since there are many animals which have sensation and yet are throughout their lives stationary and motionless if then nature does nothing in vain and except in mutilated and imperfect specimens omits nothing that is indispensable while the animals we are considering are fully developed and not mutilated as is shown by the fact that they propagate their kind and have a period of maturity and a period of decline it follows that if locomotion was implied in sensation they would have had the parts instrumental to progression nor again is it the reasoning faculty or what is called intellect that is the cause of motion for the speculative intellect thinks nothing that is practical and makes no assertion about what is to be avoided or pursued whereas motion always implies that we are avoiding or pursuing something but even if the mind has something of the kind before it it does not forthwith prompt avoidance or pursuit for example it often thinks of something alarming or pleasant without prompting to fear the only effect is a beating of the heart or when the thought is pleasant some other bodily movement besides even if the intellect issues the order and the understanding bids us avoid or pursue something still we are not thereby moved to act on the contrary action is determined by desire in the case for instance of the incontinent man and generally we see that although a man possesses a knowledge of medicine it does not follow that he practises and this implies that there is something else apart from the knowledge which determines action in accordance with the knowledge nor again is it solely appetency on which this motion depends the continent though they feel desire that is appetite do not act as their desires prompt but on the contrary obey reason End of chapter nine of book three recording in memory of mitchell edwards